Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Welcome back to Breaking Banks Asia and our 10th episode after relaunching last year. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson. Following our last episode on China's central bank digital currency, we're diving deeper into digital assets in Asia with two very exciting guests, Renee Michaud and Danielle Zetho from Standard Chartered. Just after we recorded this show, Binance became the latest crypto scalp to fall. The U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission filed a lawsuit alleging willful evasion of U.S. law in a 74-page claim that covers Binance's attitudes to regulation and suggestions that customers include terrorists. Most extraordinarily of all was that senior executives allegedly put all of this in writing. Now, this is just the latest hit to a sector still reeling from debanking in the U.S., the downfall of Terra Luna last year, and FDX, and Silicon Valley Bank, and Silvergate this year. And yet, investors throughout Asia are super keen on digital assets. In 2021, Accenture said 52% of wealth managers here already had digital assets in their portfolios. Three quarters of the 3,200 affluent to ultra-high net worth clients they spoke to were keen on diversifying into the sector. The future of digital assets in this region is so interesting that Standard Chartered is in the race to become a major player once markets are established in the next few years. Rene Michaud is the global head of digital assets for Standard Chartered. He is a long-time listener and the man who looks after all things in the digital asset space in both the institutional and retail sides of the bank. And we also have Danielle Zeffo, who launched the Australia Fintech Association and followed Renee into what is her first ever banking job, the boss of the digital assets portfolio and regulation at Standard Chartered. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great to be here. I'm going to ask you about the lay of the land for digital assets in Asia. So Bitcoin is up again. Uh, Gold is up as well. But crypto companies are being deliberately debanked in the US and many say in Australia as well. CBDC is rapidly becoming real. And investors in Asia, according to Nikkei at least, are expecting a rocky road for digital assets in the future. So things are all looking quite uncertain, depending on who you talk to. So what does the landscape look like in Asia right now? That's a really interesting way to lay that out. I do think there's a lot of uncertainty in that sphere. I think that all of the actors in the ecosystem, in my view, are trying to act from a good place. Certainly from our perspective at Standard Chartered, the bigger opportunity over the long horizon is the tokenization of traditional financial services and the delivery of efficiency and stability into the financial ecosystem that is possible with the underlying technology of blockchain and digital assets. But we're still very early in the process. 
And so you've got ecosystems that have evolved outside of the regulatory environment. And regulators have been doing a heap of work in the US, in Australia, in all of the markets to deeply understand this. I'd suggest that the catalytic event for that was probably Facebook's announcement of Libra. And I think we saw a really big um, energy injection from all of the regulatory in, uh, environment um, to research the, the space from top to bottom. Uh, if you look at Mika, which is coming out in Europe, a lot of that initiated around, well, how do we manage banking stability in that context? And I think every regulator, particularly you know, in Asia, is also trying to come to grips with that. You have so many different each country is at a different level in terms of regulation, in terms of maturity in their industry and approach, and in terms of adoption. Yeah, lots of different speeds and lots of different focuses, actually. So picking up on that particular trend, and I love the fact that you started with Libra because I definitely think that that was one of the very, very biggest catalysts, but actually probably the other one, which was even like just equally as big and quite startling, I think, for a lot of different regulators across Asia and the world was also when the PBOC actually announced that they were actually going to do their e and b That was a huge initiative because this was actually suddenly you've got a question not just of, uh, you know, a very large world power uh, that is actually doing something quite innovative and I think very much directionally in line with what, you know, is their sort of ethos around centralization and control. Um, but then on the other side of that was definitely also a move to catalyze or basically to defend against what's kind of happening or outside world, so the announcement of Libra's, uh, Libra Point, et cetera. But that, I think, was also then starting to spur some of that kind of competitive, like both regional and international competitiveness between all the different regulators in terms of sovereign currency control because all of a sudden, suddenly, people were going, becoming very, very alarmed. Certainly, we felt that in Australia. I remember when that came out uh, when I was there. We certainly uh, felt it was a bit of a case of, well, hang on a second. What happens when renminbi becomes so easily tradable and so prolific that all of a sudden you start to see a risk toward the international hegemony of the US dollar? So that's kind of when you started to see all these other competing projects. So you started to see the cross-border currency kind of uh, cooperations between the different regulators, PBOC partnering with HKMA, partnering with Bank of Thailand, MAS partnering with all these different people, uh, you know, leading to the many different pilots of BOCs that you have today. But actually, I would also argue that there has also been a bit of a splintering because I think that sort of regulated CBDC environment is obviously being quite active. But then on the flip side of that, you've also got the crypto ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And it's been really interesting to kind of observe how sort of different the approaches have been with the regulators and the different speeds and also the pullbacks. I mean, do you remember like probably about a couple of years ago, everyone was talking about how Singapore was going to yep. be the crypto hub, right? Like they were the ones who announced their sort of like strong kind of regulations. One year ago, that was just one year ago. People. Exactly. And everyone was talking about the fact that Hong Kong was also, you know, they launched this new sort of regulatory regime for crypto assets, which was very, very tightly defined to only accredited investors. And everyone was saying, oh my goodness, like, and actually I was in Hong Kong at the time and everyone was like, well, everyone's going to be moving away from Hong Kong to Singapore because, you know, Singapore's got a very friendly regime, but Hong Kong's regime is, is clamping down. And to be honest, it's not going to be very workable. Fast forward 12 months and you've got Ravi Menon making speeches at the Singapore FinTech Festival last November saying, you know, basically, you know, retail crypto participation is bad, but, you know, institutional DeFi is great. Um, and you're sort of now starting to see this backward flow where 
actually Hong Kong is now starting to launch a retail regime. And in fact, in June, it should be launching uh, its upgraded regulatory regime, which should include participation. And I'm actually hearing that there's some 80 different blockchain-based companies that are actually queuing to basically set up and establish, uh, whether from mainland or overseas, in Hong Kong under this new licensing regime. So very, very different kind of pullbacks from the Singapore side, but now kind of more of an opening to the crypto side of things from the Hong Kong department at the same time where the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is also actively participating in many of these cross-border CBDC projects. So interesting to kind of see the flow and ebb and shift uh, of the regulatory dialogue there. I want to pick up on that. I think what's really interesting is the tension between the commercial opportunity in crypto in particular mm. and the regulatory maturity of different markets. And that's what's driving this migration of firms in terms of where they run development teams, where they market, where they build business. And we kind of we forget that regulation and regulated financial services actually moves relatively slowly. And sometimes that leaves commercial opportunity on the table. But you've got a VC-funded firm or a set of VC-funded firms who are looking at customer acquisition cost and customer acquisition growth and other metrics that drive profitability or at least drive the next round. And so that's, I think, why you see this really different speed move, why we end up with some large firms growing very quickly, potentially without all of the controls and risk and governance that we might like to see in a financial services firm. Um, And why we see this migration from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. It's very easy to talk about that as risk-based jurisdictional arbitrage but I think it's more nuanced than that. I think it's that, you know, I, hey, I'm a founder. I'm trying to build a business. I'm trying to do something good for the community. And I need to find a place where that's going to work. And if the current place I'm in is not working, I can't just go back to my investors and give them back the money and shut up my business and go home. I've talked about a few different players in this space. I'd like to talk about institutional investors in Asia. What are you guys seeing you are obviously setting up Standard Chartered as a digital asset player. So where is that demand coming from? Is it country-based? Is it stratified across uh, different industries? Is it high net worth? Is it family offices? Well, you know, Where is that demand coming from? In all parts of our business, we are seeing interest from institutions of all types, so hedge funds, asset managers, other financial institutions, to get as- access to an asset class which is performing differently and responding differently to market events than others. So, you know, you can talk about it being uncorrelated. It's not uncorrelated, but the way I refer to it is asymmetric. And actually, I think we were having a look, I remember we were doing a bit of analysis on it, and I think that what we actually found even over the last couple of years is that the volatility associated with, like, the most common ones, Bitcoin and ETH, um, you know, is actually probably around about the same level as some of the various different equity markets you're actually seeing in emerging markets. So, I mean, certainly, and to your sort of earlier question, I would argue hedge funds obviously have been very, very interested because obviously they're very used to dealing with volatile assets. And in fact, you know, you talk to many of them here in Asia um, and quite a number of them have developed uh, models looking at ways to predict um, you know, for the volatility and actually price that. And then you've also got, you know, more traditional institutions. I think the other component of it, which is something that, you know, certainly Renee and I, my, our thesis around a lot of what we're doing here is that fundamentally what we kind of see with the new Web3 economy. And so everything that's been happening with metaverse plays and, you know, all of the participation that we're kind of seeing in uh, some of these kind of new Web3 arenas inevitably kind of means that you do end up having to deal with the crypto space. So people who are playing around with 
NFTs and we're doing projects in Decentraland, you have to get into crypto somehow to basically get access to that ecosystem because it's not on the traditional fiat ecosystem. So you inevitably end up with some portion of crypto on your balance sheet. And I remember your favorite stat that you always used to quote was that one about, was it Nike who, was yeah. who, who bought that company? Artifact. Artifact, yeah. And then suddenly you just end up with like a whole, you know, shed load of, of crypto on your balance sheet. And actually, I was reading a really nice report from Zach's investment management strategists over in the US. They were actually saying that you know some 24 different publicly listed companies in the US had somewhere around $4 billion worth of crypto on their balance sheet, like just publicly listed companies. So, I mean, and that's the United States. That's not even Asia. Asia, I would probably say, is, is even more accelerated than that. So... You know, certainly from the demand that we see, and actually as we, we talk to quite a lot of the you know existing client base that we have in, in our investor segment, in our finance funds segment, in our broker dealer segment, it's like every month and at a very increasing rate, we have existing clients coming to us and saying, hey, you know how we currently work with you on you know banking sort of 20, 30 different funds? Well, we're just about to open our 31st one. And guess what? It's a spot crypto fund. And, you know, a lot of us are having to figure out how to deal with that, which makes it very, very fun and interesting. But, um, you know, so that hopefully gives you a sense of the sort of demand that we see here. It is definitely real. So you mentioned, Renee, you mentioned infrastructure just before, and I'd love to talk to you just very quickly about what sort of infrastructure needs to be built for an institutional digital asset market to grow. What sort of infrastructure do you actually need to build to make this market uh, work and flourish. So, in in terms of the infrastructure that we need, you kind of need to look at what you what exists today for non crypto assets or non digital asset assets. We rely on lots of intermediaries to safe keep assets and to move money around, and that's done at scale, and it's done in the context of licensed institutions. So one of the difficult things about the regulatory conversation at the moment is on the one hand, you've got firms, you've got uh, regulators wondering if they've got enough power to regulate actors in the crypto and digital asset space, but at the same time discouraging regulated banks from participating in certain asset classes. So I think that's something that we need to work on a resolution for to some extent. I think the BCBS issuing their guidance earlier this year um, was or late last year, sorry, it was really helpful in that we have something to refer to and there's more clarity, but that creates a space for firms like us to invest. Um, we need to have a way of safekeeping digital assets. And so that kind of looks a lot like crypto custody. Um, and we've launched Sodia Custody, which is registered in the UA, uh, sorry, UK, and that offers crypto custody. Uh, we also need a way to move money. And so this idea of a stablecoin or tokenized deposits or CBDC is actually really central to a large-scale growth of digital asset markets. And this is true both for crypto, but it's also true when you're looking at tokenized assets. So if we look at, I don't know, if you want to look at the Australian share market, if you wanted to look at SGX, there's a whole heap of focus on taking existing securities, turning them into tokens, putting them onto blockchains, and gaining access to new investors, removing cost, creating better secondary markets, like all of those objectives make sense. But without the ability to move money on the same blockchain as the assets, it gets very difficult. 
So that conversation, I think, is evolving well. I think regulators are very engaged in that conversation. Banks are very engaged in that conversation. Exchanges, you know, all sorts of industry players are engaged. And actually, I think if you were to look at the investments that many different banks are making, and actually, actually, one of the crazy things that Renee did that kind of attracted me to joining Standard Chartered, I mean, Standard Chartered actually launched a live blockchain-based cross-border remittance platform together with Amps Blockchain, supporting Hong Kong workers sending money back to the Philippines in 2018, 2017. Yeah, it went live in June 2018. June 2018, still live today. And that actually also involved, you know, you know, tokenizing, uh, I think, underlying deposits, deposits uh, as part of that cross-border transfer. That's actually a live to-consumer product that they launched in 2018. And I mean, Ant as a partner, and this is all public information, Ant as a partner obviously has been pushing in this space for many years. In fact, they've been, you know, very, very advanced in quite a lot of their own internal treasury movements on the blockchain, you know, working very closely with a range of different international banks in this market ever since then in how they could actually simplify and automate a lot of their back-end processes, uh, clearly driving the cost reductions, but also leveraging the best of the technology, right? And, you know, that's actually really forced a lot of the banks here to actually have to match to innovate. There is nothing like driving innovation through getting your clients uh, to participate in some of those initiatives or them actually being the ones driving you forward. So, um, you know, that's definitely also been kind of one of the mantras, I think, at Standard Charter in in terms of where we've been focusing our efforts, like where is the client man? Where, and that's, you know, as Renee mentioned, you know, the fact that we've actually got Zodia Markets and Zodia Custody, these two ventures that are focused on both uh, safekeeping as well as, uh, you know, trading of digital assets, uh, particularly crypto assets. You know, we launched those because we felt that that was where the market opportunity lay in the first couple of years. Um, and I think that quite a number of the other banks are launching similar initiatives. So, for example, DBS Bank here in, in, in Singapore has also announced their plan to launch a digital a crypto asset exchange. Quite a number of other banks have been investing. JP Morgan, of course, very public about their internal work on the blockchain. So plenty of investment going on across a lot of different banks. And I think in terms of the capabilities, I think the most striking thing is if you hark back to the conversation we had way before, and we talk about the fact that, you know, you're dealing in Asia with you know, regulators that are pushing CBDCs, you've got other sort of commercial reasons where clients are also pushing for private blockchain networks. You've got other types of commercial situations where the regulators are also pushing for, you know, maybe cross-border trade networks like Project Guardian out of the MAS. Um, But you've also got all sorts of other, you know, initiatives that you want to be able to participate in, such as these crypto-based initiatives. What that means for your infrastructure is that you need to be building a very modular capability that can basically integrate with any of these types of public or private rails as quickly and seamlessly and efficiently as possible. And you have to be able to do that in a way that is 24-7-365 enabled. And that is so far away from where almost every single bank is right now. Um, So this is the reason why I always refer to what we're doing here with respect to the digital assets program as a giant transformation program. You know, you mentioned that the market is demanding this sort of functionality, these sorts of assets. But FTX kind of proved that when the market demands something and demands it too quickly because returns are so good, things break. So given the regulators have not caught up yet and given things are moving so quickly, what's to stop something going very, very wrong? You know, we saw that with the DeFi crash. We're seeing that now with FTX and SVB, you know, What's to stop that happening with what you guys are doing uh, or what other people are doing in Asia? 
Yeah, so I think I think the risk part of this is super important. Um, the if you look at what DeFi is doing and what's happening a lot in the crypto space, like in the last ten years, people have been trying to recreate the financial services that have evolved over several hundred years in a ten year period on a brand new operating system, and that's really hard. And again, back to when you're a VC funded firm. Uh, prioritizing uh, the establishment of risk functions which slow you down and which make you think twice is ha- a hard sell to your, your VC sometimes, right? And, and so I don't want to be too unkind to people. What was evident, what has been evident in several failures is a lack of oversight and a lack of governance and a lack of controls. It comes back to my point. So the involvement of regulated institutions in the ecosystem is absolutely, absolutely critical. You know, we have control infrastructures to mitigate the risk of, you know, commingling of client funds to, you know, of bad conduct, of all of those things. And that's through hard-won lessons where most of us have had to build remediation programs and either had near misses or, or whatever that have to, have had to be dealt with, right? And there's no, you know, there's no point pretending that's not the case, right? We're, we're not magically better than everyone else. It's through the experience of making mistakes that that infrastructure exists. So um, for us at Standard Chartered, and I think it's true for many firms, we've really prioritised how we're embedding digital assets into the risk function and ensuring that all of our risk categories are both upskilling and um, developing tools to set risk appetite, to manage through controls, um, and to understand how this asset class of technology impacts our uh, existing risk infrastructure and the risks that our business has. So it's managing the risk in the context of a new way of delivering the assets and a new set of technologies underneath that. It's really interesting how banks are recognising the possibilities created by those pioneering crypto and digital companies over the last two decades. Coming up next, we delve into which countries are leading the push into digital assets in Asia after this short break. Do you want to be part of Breaking Banks Asia? Reach out to learn more about the opportunity to be featured in one of our shows. With an audience across Asia of CEOs, CTOs, founders and opinion leaders, Breaking Banks Asia is where the conversations are happening about the Asian fintech and banking scene. Reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Breaking Banks Asia or go to www.provoke.fm. Welcome back to Breaking Banks Asia. This is Rachel Williamson, your host, and we're speaking with Renee Michaud and Danielle Zetho, who are leading Standard Chartered's push into digital assets in Asia. Which countries in the region are really leading the digital asset space in Asia? And with this particular question, Danielle, I'd love you to give a bit of a background about that rise of Dubai. Uh, <laughs> and how that kicked. Oh, um, Dubai, Dubai. Yeah, and how well, that yeah. and how that sort of shocked Hong Kong and others into yeah. look with any kind of financial innovation or actually any kind of innovation, really, what innovative companies need or want is clarity. They want clarity. They want the regulators to understand that what it is that they're doing, even if it may be pushing some perimeters and some regulatory barriers there's at least enough there for them to have certainty to be able to make a decision about how their business model is going to work. 
And I think that the regimes or the, the, the jurisdictions that actually went out first with reasonably well thought through but very clear and definitive regimes were the ones that initially attracted the crypto, uh, the crypto, you know, ecosystem. So actually, you know, shout out to Japan. Japan actually was one of the first to launch a very, very comprehensive regime. And in fact, you know, for a very, very long time, a lot of the exchanges that actually set up there, um, they set a very, very high bar for a lot of the exchanges to operate, particularly on the cybersecurity concerns. Um, and, you know, that regime has actually stood them in pretty good stead. And it meant that, you know, they did end up having quite a very significant amount of you know, retail participation, uh, and but actually in a relatively safe way. I mean, apart from the previous losses, obviously, from the Mt. Gox and previous original hacks, those learnings obviously drove the need for that regime, which is the reason why the ecosystem subsequently flourished off the back of that. And then when you saw Hong Kong with its, you know, limited sort of uh, accredited investor regime, but Singapore with a much more comprehensive regime under the Payment Services Act, this is where you saw that kind of migration of a lot of the different companies toward places like Singapore. Um, you know, and then in contrast, you've actually got markets, for example, like China, that like a you know, complete outright ban. You had India, which was a little bit like, oh, we're banning this, but actually, no, we're not. We never said we banned it, but actually we're going to tax it. But actually, we're also not sure we're going to go ahead with this. And, you know, basically all the banks were kind of told, like, you shouldn't really be in this. But, you know, on, on the face of it, people were still participating. So, you know, that that is the absolute opposite of clarity. Um, so it's been very, very difficult actually for a lot of exchanges to flourish there. Indonesia also kind of very, very interesting kind of market where you've basically got, uh, you know, the government stepping in and saying, actually, we want our financial existing infrastructure to basically build new infrastructure for this, effectively taking control of it and limiting the amount of external innovation that could happen because they're basically saying, we basically want to do this through existing methods and means. Um, or the Philippines, which is, you know, basically had a huge queue of people who were looking to basically obtain licensing until the regulator stepped in and said, actually, no more. And now you've actually got almost like a bidding process for people to come in, buy the licenses of those who were even just sitting in the queue to get a license um, because, you know, there is no other way to actually get one now. So very, very strange mix of responses. And sort of in this kind of backdrop, and especially at the time when uh, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore, it wasn't really quite certain how you know or where the momentum was going to be, you suddenly had the establishment of this new virtual asset regulatory authority, VARA, in the Middle East, in, in Dubai, and a very strong statement of intent that they basically wanted to become the home of everything crypto. And suddenly you have almost in parallel sync you know, all of these different issues that happened and the MAS suddenly saying, you know, we're not really so sure that we're comfortable with the number of exchanges that are sitting up here, particularly when it comes to retail participation, people losing money, et cetera, et cetera, off the back of FTX and Terra Luna. And, you know, suddenly the winds change and you start to see a lot of the exchanges, a lot of the communities starting to relocate up toward uh, Dubai. And that's actually been kind of, I think, Till now, the flow of traffic until Hong Kong basically sort of announced, actually, we're starting to see, particularly off the back of COVID, the contraction of the, econ the economy there, they needed to actually start attracting a lot more talent back into the ecosystem. So they said, well, actually, we do still believe in uh, digital assets as being a core plank of what it is that we do. Um, you know, we have seen the development of a safe accredited investor regime we believe we've learned enough from that to be able to actually allow retail participation. And, you know, we think it's a good time for us to actually open this up and actually potentially bring some of these, you know, valuable exchanges back, noting, you know, for example, crypto.com originally, you know, their what origins of, in Hong Kong. What sort of 
let's just go back to the the Dubai mm. side again. What sort of threat did it pose? Because you know Dubai is this. It's ultimately in the center of the Middle East, but it also links Europe. It links the Pacific. It, it has turned itself into a, such a hub. So, how much of a threat was their move on crypto and digital assets to Hong Kong and Singapore? So, I, I might reflect on some of the things that Danielle has said in, in answering this question. Because there's, you know, the, the, what we're talking about here is well, who's doing it better and who's leading and who's following and what's happening. I, I think it's very easy at any given point in time to point at several jurisdictions that are ahead, but that doesn't last for very long ever. And that speaks to your question here around threat. I, I don't, you know, I think the real challenge here is much more macro than that. The you've got a, a whole um, ecosystem that's evolved around a set of um, tools and a set of talent um, that is actually really materially beneficial in the long term for financial services, for economic activity, and for the success of jurisdictions. So from a strategic perspective, I said at the beginning of the, this um, you know, show that I don't think anyone's acting from a bad place. Everyone's trying to do the best thing based on where they sit and what their objectives are. And they're trying to act in ways that are um, sensible and long term. Now, the outcome of that is, isn't always perfect. So I think that the combination of Dubai, you know, coming out more recently with clarity, um, with access to work visas and ways that people could migrate to the jurisdiction was helpful at a point in time when other jurisdictions were taking time to think about how they changed their approach, whether or not there was some negative um, impacts from the approach that they had been taking. Um, and, you know, I think that was really, that's been really helpful. Now, I think if you were to look forward and then ask this question again in six months, 12 months, 24 months, two years, we're going to see the landscape shift again because what we have is a small group of talented people that have been working on this. Everybody's working to try and build that talent and to increase the available amount of talent. Um, but this is, you know, this is a huge part of what's going on is people want the talent in their jurisdiction. They want access to the talent. They want to find out the way that this is going to benefit their population, um, could benefit their financial services ecosystem and benefit their economy. More what I'm looking for is a bit of an idea about, you know, the push-pull between different jurisdictions. Everyone is going to be working from a place of we're going to do this as well as we can. But when a country like Dubai, which is so set up for attracting businesses, sets itself up to attract such a growing and increasingly important industry, someplace like Hong Kong, which has been struggling for the last few years as a financial centre for a number of reasons, goes, all of our people are leaving. That's going to have some really interesting dynamics going on there. Did that shock Hong Kong into, into acting? Did it, has it prompted more activity amongst regulators throughout the region? Has it sort of been a shock in the arm that, that was needed to, to move things forward a bit more? I mean, all of these things have been a shock in the arm. Right? So <laughs> as soon as someone comes up with clarity and talent starts migrating, everyone else goes, uh-oh, where's that talent going? And develops a response in the context of who they are. So I guess the I guess the answer is yes. Yeah. But it's like it's not much different. Like it's different right now mm. because of the timing. Mm. And I think that it's probably equally been as much about the developments in, in Dubai as it has been about 
you know, the subs like the, the sort of long string of collapses starting from Terra Luna through to FTX through to XXXXX, right? Like, I think that that's actually probably been the more influential dynamic that's actually playing out here because it wasn't actually, I mean, you think about these things sequentially, it wasn't actually that long afterwards where uh, people were actually starting to take these decisions to potentially relocate. Um, and that's kind of where you sort of saw the coincidental, or not coincidental, the, the sort of uh, aligned timing around what had happened with Terra Luna and FTX and how that actually therefore started to drive the change in narrative around the regulatory dialogue as well. Probably less so in, like, obviously we kind of touched on Hong Kong before in terms of, I, I do think Hong Kong response was very much spurred by an economic driver to make sure that they were attracting financial services talent back into the ecosystem. But from a Singapore perspective, and you know, to, your, to Renee's point about, you know, it's really just kind of going to be in line with your existing messaging. I don't really think Singapore Inc.'s messaging has changed much. I think they have always been very much on that side of wanting to do things at least in a very safe and well-regulated manner. Um, you know, the PSA, uh, the Payment Services Act, and the regime that the digital payment tokens uh, regime sort of sits within, uh, you know, was very, very carefully designed to protect consumers. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, since everything that's happened, people have been scrutinising that with a fine tooth comb to make sure that there are no gaps. Um, in fact, you know, we've contributed to a number of consultations on that fact on, based on the learnings that we have. So I think that directionally hasn't changed much. And I think Singapore's view on a lot of these things will be focusing still continually on the digital assets play, things like Project Guardian, things like Project Orchid, which is their sort of CBDC play. Um, so they are very long digital assets, probably less so on crypto assets that they know that it's a fundamental part of that ecosystem and you kind of have to do one to do the other, um, but certainly not encouraging retail participation, which is where I think the nuances lie there um, versus, you know, I think the Dubai message has been one of just, you know, we're really keen to actually get the talent and we see it sort of evolving everywhere. So these stuff, like, you know, the announcements that, you know, some of the first exchanges to be regulated there were Binance. I think that shot quite a number of different people, but, you know, that's... Uh, a good way to make a splash. Yeah, it's becoming quite, it's transcending tech in many ways now. It's becoming a global trade and economics issue. So the world has entered this, uh, another period of banking instability. We're not quite sure what's going to happen next, who's going to fall, who's going to be remaining at the end of the day and what sort of regulations are going to be in place because there are going to be some. This comes after that instability caused by unregulated DeFi, which caused a lot more systemic risk than anyone realized they could. Just months earlier, I had been asking this question, could this create systemic risk? Oh, no, no, no. It's all too small. DeFi is too small. I can't do that. And, and then it did. What regulations need to be in place to prevent digital assets from causing turmoil in both the traditional finance world and the digital finance world? I mean, I think let's look at a materiality uh, lens first, right? Like the market cap of crypto is still, you know, around a trillion dollars, right, as opposed to gold, which is nine. So I think what we're really looking at here is what's the linkage between the two and, and how is the regulatory environment, you know, playing into that? I spoke earlier a bit about the importance of regulated firm participation. So let's break, the, let's break this into, I guess, two parts. The volatility or the you know, collapse of Terra Luna last year was more about the way that that stablecoin was constructed. It was a lack of reserve around that and no buffer for market volatility. And so that in particular was not a particularly resilient ecosystem. 
there were other ecosystems within DeFi that were much more resilient and that were largely unaffected by that issue. From Terra Luna's perspective, there was very little impact on the traditional financial services industry. When we look at um, FTX, which is probably like, we can, you know, obviously there were several other firms that experienced challenges during that time, three arrows, et cetera. But a lot of this failure, um, and FTX in particular, can be put down to human stuff. It's not the asset class that's actually been the problem here. It's people not having segregation between client funds and proprietary funds. It's not having conduct controls and appropriate supervision. It's not having a strong risk management um, capability in place. Can regulation fix that? Because that's effectively the the foundation for the global financial crisis as well in 2008. You know, it was people doing things that they should not, they very much should not have been doing. Yeah, that's what I'm getting on to regulated firm participation, right? You already have a whole bunch of firms that are well-regulated. And what's happening, and I think you can characterise what happened in the US in this way, you can characterise this a, a bit in Australia and in other markets as well. The fear of the crypto um, and what the regulatory, the regulatory permission for regulated firms to participate in the asset class and the worry about that not being okay led to all of the activity being concentrated in two institutions. And so when those institutions went, uh, became uh, administered by the FDIC and F- Silicon Valley Bank was actually slightly similar because there's a whole bunch of VC-funded firms, not crypto, but VC-funded firms, all banking with one institution. Wherever you end up with this really concentrated set of, on one industry, with any financial services institution, that creates a diversification risk for that institution. And if that institution fails, then there can be contagion because they're connected to other institutions that are not exposed to that sector. So, um, you know, even in Australia, as as another example, even in Singapore, you know, there's a lot of concentration of tech firms who rely on Cuscal in in Australia because of the posture of different other banks. And in, in Singapore, DBS does a great job of supporting the fintech ecosystem. Um, and, you know, and we work with several fintech and crypto firms here as well. But the, you know, there is a risk that you end up with that concentration. And I think that's probably more harmful than you know, if you were diversifying exposure to this ecosystem across the banks. You're then also encouraging regulated institutions to develop the skill set to understand the asset class and to develop the tools to manage the risks associated with the asset class. Now, the other alternative is you write a whole bunch of new regulation and you regulate a whole heap of new firms mm-hmm. and you conduct enforcement actions and then you get those firms to spend the money that banks have already spent to build controlled infrastructures that they don't have today. So somewhere in, the, in between those two things will move us towards a more stable environment. Mm-hmm. I think also one last thing I want to add is that, you know, Public blockchain-based financial products are much more transparent in terms of where the concentration of risk might be than um, traditional financial services. And the sort of criticism of traditional financial services, the tools didn't exist to do that. And so I think sometimes we focus on what went wrong and we don't focus on what we could have, what, what could have been done better and is there a different way to apply regulation and, and control. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that bit of it because I think that if we were thinking about 
the regulatory aspects of this. One of the things we were we were chatting a bit before about, you know, the podcast from the guys at um, uh, Unchained. Uh, this is um, uh, Melton Demiris talking with uh, Laura Shin, and she describes. I love this metaphor how much of the money that we see today associated with tech and crypto is being a hot ball of money. It's so fluid, it moves. And actually that kind of goes back to the original thesis around digital assets being very much 24 seven, 365, always on an instant final settlement. And I think this is the miss because I think a lot of the regulations we're sort of seeing are so fixated on the way in tr- the way in which traditional financial services has worked, where you're used to two t-, t plus two t plus three settlement times, you know, nine to five cutoffs, public, you know, bank holidays, all that kind of stuff. And I think people are very used to the idea that you can step in and reverse a transaction. You can come in, basically take over. You've got a bunch of metrics that are oriented toward being able to detect or to safeguard against runoffs. Uh, at the rate the traditional financial system allows things to run off, right? In this sort of new coming ecosystem where things are so much faster than they traditionally have been, it's questionable whether the existing metrics are actually even going to make sense. And actually the one stat that actually really blew my mind when I was listening to that podcast is that if you actually run the ruler of all of the Basel three metrics over those three supposed failed banks, they all would have passed. So those metrics clearly weren't actually going to work for them anyway. Um, And especially, obviously, you know, they're not really necessarily designed for those kinds of concentrations when you do actually have that vertical concentration. So I I do think that where, if there is to be any regulatory development, where I hope regulators are actually thinking that they will learn from some of these things, will be around how can we adapt the metrics and the approaches we use to a new ecosystem where the velocity of the way money moves around the financial system is going to be a million times faster than it was before. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, going to be the problem for a lot of people to deal with. So, so I think the, the answer is regulation can be really helpful in this. Um, we need to regulate at a different speed. Right? We, we, I feel very, um, very much for regulators. A lot of the data they're making decisions on is three to six months old, right? And the, the benefit of blockchain-based financial services is that you can get much more real-time information about risk concentration, about overall economic trends within an ecosystem or potentially an economy in a well-designed CBDC. And you can apply monetary policy, fiscal policy, um, supervision, enforcement, all of that stuff can happen in a much more timely and concentrated fashion. Um, and so that's, you know, the theory is, and I think this, this remains to be seen in terms of we, look, we all have a choice in how we build this out. But, you know, it could be, that you then reduce the these large shocks that we're experiencing at the moment where there's a mismatch between how things were done and the speed at which the economy is moving today. So I think, you know, I, I think definitely regulation can be helpful to your question directly, um, but it requires regulated firms, innovators and regulators all to come together and to collaborate on how that works. Thank you both so much for your time today. Really appreciated this chat. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having us. It's been a great chat. And yeah, look, we are fortunate to work in this exciting space. Definitely. And with some really cool people. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.